Well, I'm going to say the same thing uh, this morning that I said last night. Uh, when I got up, I, I said, Dustin, you know, if, if the Lord should, it would be sad for us if the Lord would ever lead Dustin away from Bethel Church. But if he does, Lindsay's staying. That's what I said. So a uh, hearty amen to that. Thank you for that. And uh, thank you for not letting the cold keep you away from the worship of your, of your God today. And uh, my role now is to bring God's word to us, and this is a, an important part of our weekly worship here at Bethel. We believe God's word to be uh, his revelation of himself and his son and his spirit, his creation, his redemption, all for his glory. And we want to uh, learn an aspect of that uh, this morning. Before I get into it, though, I, I want to share some exciting news with you. And this is, uh, th- this is something that your, your pastors and leaders, we've been waiting for a year and a half for next weekend. All right. Year and a half for next weekend, because that's how long ago we had to get uh, on book on the calendar, uh, a, a special person that's coming in to minister the word next weekend. And uh, his name is Dr. D.A. Carson. And I want to share a little bit about Dr. Carson with you. Those of you that know him right now are really excited to think, wow, Carson's going to be here. That's really cool. Uh, those of you that don't know him uh, perhaps are not as excited, but you should be. And I want to tell you a little bit uh, why. D.A. Carson is a professor at um, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He's been there for many years. That is only really a part, though, of his ministry and his influence. If you were to ask uh, people in the know who is the leading evangelical scholar in the world, they would either say D.A. Carson or he would be in the discussion of who would be the leading uh, biblical scholar, uh, evangelical biblical scholar in, in the world. And this is a guy that, you know, you, many of you, I think, you like coming to Bethel, you enjoy the teaching ministry of the church. This is the guy that we listen to, okay? <laughs> so maybe you all listen to the pastors here. This is the guy that we are listening to and uh, that we pay money to go to conferences to hear. And uh, he has been such a tremendous blessing to the church through his teachings, his writings, his books. He's got, you know, tons of books. I have I thought about counting how many of his books I have in my, in my library. I didn't, but it's many. And I have read him uh, for probably 20 years now. Um, he is also a very effective uh, teacher and speaker. I would say probably one or two of the top seven sermons I've ever heard in my life this guy uh, gave. And so it's just exciting for me to uh, be able to expose our church family to um, a godly man with a world-class intellect, a biblical scholar of the first uh, grade, and uh, is, is a man who has a heart for the church. And so uh, this coming weekend, next weekend, I want to urge you to come. Don't do that too often, but I want to urge you to come. And right now, some of you are going, wait, didn't we learn in 1 Corinthians that, you know, we're not supposed to say I'm of Apollos and I'm of Peter and I'm of Paul and all the rest? Yes, yes, he's human and all, and all of that. But you probably will not have that many opportunities in your life to hear live somebody like him. And uh, our pastors, we're all excited, and, and, and the elders, uh, who I'm, no doubt will be in the front row with notebooks, so excited, much like they are today, uh, as you can tell, <laughs> about the teaching ministry going on today, right here in the front. 
Next week, we probably, we probably will be. So I just want to urge you to come. It's going to be a special weekend. He's going to be speaking on the gospel from Romans 3. And uh, let's be in prayer that God would bless his ministry to us and that he would bless our ministry to him in the way that we show our respect, our uh, care, and we listen to him with attentiveness. Our study in 1 Corinthians uh, brings us today to one of the most cherished verses in all of the Bible. This is a verse that millions of Christians down through the years have lingered over uh, in their times of difficulty and have found great help and comfort in the truth that it teaches us. Now, why do we need comfort? Well, if you've been tracking with uh, what we've been studying here Paul has really basically taken the Corinthians behind the woodshed and it's just been whooping on them and saying, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Don't you realize that you are going the way of the Israelites in what they did and the mistakes that they made? They were in danger of walking the same destructive path. So we have seen that pride, spiritual pride, a sense of privilege, a sense of being special, which the Israelites clearly had, and the Corinthians had as well, blinded them to the precariousness of their situation, and they were in danger of falling. And that's why verse 12, uh, Paul writes, take heed lest you fall. And so it's been very strong, and I don't know how much you have felt the power and the sternness of the warnings that Paul has been making, but these are very strong uh, exhortations that he has been has been giving. We talked last week about spiritual vertigo and what happens to us when temptation gets a hold of us. That in those moments, especially, we are in a dangerous situation because when temptation, when I suddenly face temptation, there my, my spiritual equilibrium inside gets all messed up and things that I used to see clearly, I don't see as clearly anymore. And that is why on the other side of some devastating sin, we look at ourselves in the mirror and we say, how did I ever do something like that? I never thought it would happen to me and all the rest. That's what temptation does. It throws us all out of whack and we do some of the dumbest things. Good place for an amen. We do some of the dumbest things, say some of the dumbest things, lust after some of the stupidest things, covet in other people's lives some of the most inane things. We get all our, we get our affections set on some of the most like worthless, nonsensical things. Can I go on? We just get all stupid, don't we? Temptation makes us stupid. I read this week, Plantigo said that sin is self What does he say? Sin is self-abuse. Sin is self-abuse. If you're involved in sin and you are in rebellion against God in some area and you think you're getting away with it and you think that you can do it and nobody knows and everything's fine, sin, we do not break the Ten Commandments, they break us. Okay? Sin destroys us. And only in temptation and the stupidity of that would we see it otherwise. So that's why when we come now, we get to the end of verse 12, be careful lest you fall. Look out. It would be easy for 
us to give into this sense of like, well, I guess the way that I need to live now is I need to cut off my cable and I'm not going out of the house anymore and I'm going to cuddle in a blanket in my bedroom in a dark room until I die. Because otherwise I'm facing temptation and I'll never make it. And we can, we can become uh, paralyzed by fear. And Paul recognized the, the strength of what he has been saying. And he takes a moment now and he gives a very pastoral word. A very, very much a word of comfort and a word of hope. So that we do not feel overwhelmed. And so here is the verse. Many of you know this verse. Here's what it says. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It's all we're studying today. Just this one verse. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. One of the challenges of uh, teaching from a familiar passage is that many of you, just like me, have known this verse for a very long time. I learned this verse in Awana, I believe, by memory when I was a kid. I've probably known this verse by heart for like 35 years now. And when we come to think verses that we've known for a long time, there can be subtly in our heart this sense that I already know that. I, I already got this figured out. And I can tell you, I have, before this weekend, I don't think I have really understood what this verse actually was saying. I have learned this week in my studies from this verse new things. And so I want to encourage you right now, don't settle in and think, I've heard this before. Let's come at this from a fresh, a fresh perspective, and I think God will have something uh, for us. Deal? Amen. Okay, deal. Let's do that. Remember the context? The context is warning. The warnings that Paul has given about falling. And here now we have a word of comfort. Rather than being paralyzed by fear, there is a better way. And it begins with a recognition, first of all, that, that when I am overtaken by some kind of a temptation or a trouble, that I am not the first one to ever face this. That is what he says at the beginning of the verse. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Now, the word there for temptation, uh, the Greek word, it, it doesn't exactly mean temptation the way that we typically mean temptation. When somebody says, I am facing temptation, for us in our common vernacular, we think that uh, in the negative. Like I've got some kind of a, a, an evil that I am thinking about doing or that I am feeling a desire to do. The word here, it, it, it actually means, it, it can include temptation, but it really means to test or to prove. You could put in the word struggle. Or maybe challenge, something like that, trial. Now doesn't that make this verse mean something a little bit different than maybe you thought? There is no struggle that you will ever face that is not common to man. There is no uh, uh, trial that you will ever face that somebody else hasn't already gone through. Such as is common to man. And I think that that is intended to be a comfort to us because typically when we are in the midst of some great pain or some great sorrow or whatever it might be, we typically think to ourselves, nobody has ever felt this way before. 
I am the first one who has ever gone through this and nobody else can understand the pain of my heart and the grief that I feel and all the rest. Paul says, listen, there are, there are billions of people that have lived on this planet. And all of us suffer the same human condition living in a broken world. We all are going through the same kinds of trials. Now, they may not be circumstantially exactly the same. But the pain and the trouble and the, the, the struggle that all of us are going through is as real to us as mine are to me. We are in this together would be another way to translate this. And, and, and all of us are dealing with the same kinds of struggles. Nobody rises to a level of spirituality where now, you know what? There is the common man struggle and then there is the pastor struggle. Because I am so much, you know, spirit, more spiritual. And, or maybe you are, you, you're, you're the head of your family or you're somebody, you're the son of a preacher or son of a deacon and we know what happens to them. Um, so maybe that's not a good illustration, but... Um, we can have this sense of superiority or exclusiveness or I'm special. And Paul says, listen, we're all sinners and we're all living in the same sicko world and we all face the same kinds of temptations. We are in this together. I am not alone in it. The pain has been felt before. My trials are not unique. Now, how is this helpful? Think of this. Is it helpful to consider that before me, millions of Christians specifically have faced this same kind of temptation and trial and struggle and God has brought them through? Now, I don't know if I said that with the proper force. Let me try it again. Think of this. There isn't a single one of us who are facing a single thing that God doesn't have uh, centuries of experience bringing people just like us through successfully. Okay. Uh, yeah, that is a good news. <laughs> because, again, when we feel, when we experience something, we wonder Am I, can I make it through this? Is God, is God going to get me through this thing? Because it feels to us so unique and nobody really has done it before. No, tons of people have. And God is really, really good at not let, letting the righteous fall and helping us to persevere. Now, this is a little bit of a silly illustration. I'm admitting this, but maybe it'll help. When I was in... Uh, in junior high. So we're going back like decades to when I was in junior high. Um, I, the school that I went to, this is the way they did it back in the stone age. When I was in school, we had, we didn't have middle school and high and like high school. We had junior high and high school. And so junior high was seventh, eighth, and ninth. And then high school was 10th, 11th, 12th. Now they've switched it up, but that's the way that they did it. So I remember when I was in junior high, so I'm, in, I'm now in ninth grade, I was thinking about what it was going to be like to move up to the big high school. And on the outside, I'm cool as a cucumber about it. No problem. Inside them all, you know, I was nervous about it because I would occasionally be around the high school and, and, and see 
the, you know, kind of what it was like, and it was big, and it was loud, and, you know, the guys after school and their cars peeling a rubber around the roads, people screaming and all that, and, and uh, you know, guys with hair under their arms, you know, and, <laughs> which I was a late bloomer, okay. <laughs> and the whole thing was just kind of terrifying to me. And I remember in ninth grade thinking about a guy that was a year older than me and who had already gone up to the high school. Uh, his name was John. And John was kind of a, kind of a geek sort of guy. Um, he uh, was given an unflattering nickname, which I will not mention, in the school. Uh, just one of these guys didn't have a lot on the ball. And I saw him, after he'd gone to the high school, I'd see him around, and he had friends, and he seemed happy. And I remember thinking to myself in ninth grade, if John can do it, so can I. If John can do it, so can I. And spiritually speaking, this is what Paul is getting at for us. Since my trial is common, and millions have faced the same kind of thing, And if they, by God's grace, not in their own power, but by God's grace, if they have gotten through this, then by God's grace, so can I. So can I. Take heart. Be encouraged. Another example of this, uh, just from this week. Uh, You know, it snowed this week. (laughs) It snowed, it snowed. And this week I was uh, standing outside and I was talking with a guy in our church uh, Malcolm Halstead. Many of you probably know Malcolm. Gary mentioned Mickey in his prayer earlier in the service. Mickey has just begun her uh, uh, treatment for cancer. And so there's many of us who were concerned and praying for them. And so I was talking with Malcolm and I, I said, Hey, Malcolm, how's it? Because she started this week. I said, How's Mickey doing? And Malcolm says, Oh, she's doing, she's, she's doing good. Uh, he, and, and he goes, and, Oh, the church has been so helpful. And he said, especially Dee Pratt. Oh, what a blessing she has been. Now, you may not know this about Dee Pratt. Uh, Dee is the wife of one of our elders. Uh, Dee has gone through cancer twice. Okay. Now, why would Dee Pratt be an encouragement to Mickey Halstead? Because every time Mickey sees the phone ringing and it says Dee Pratt on the caller ID, and every time she hears D. Pratt's voice saying, how you doing? What's going on? Are you feeling tired? Are you hungry? What, you know, what are your symptoms? Every time she hears D. Pratt's voice, it is a reminder to her that God can bring you through. Even things like cancer and chemotherapy and radiation. It's a reminder that many people have gone through the same thing and God has brought them through. And if God can bring them through by his grace and his power, then by his grace and power, so can I. And I say that to your encouragement here because there is no doubt there are tremendous burdens that are in this room uh, this morning. If you remember when we had our prayer service some weeks ago and we let people just anonymously text in the prayer request, do you remember I was like, I was kind of shocked actually at the, at the seriousness of the burdens that were in that 
room. And no doubt that is true here today. And I want to say to your encouragement what this verse is saying to us. That it doesn't matter what you are going through, somebody else has gone through it before. And there is somebody else who's gone through it that God has enabled them to get through it. And if you will access the resources that God provides, so can you. So take heart. Take heart. We're in it together. And God is for us. He wants to see us get through it. Which really then gets to the second point. And I would say this is the foundation of the entire thing that Paul is saying here. It is the character of God. And what, is, what does he pick? Not his love, although that is wonderful. Not his mercy, fantastic. Not his all-knowing, that's wonderful as well. The verse says this. God is faithful. Okay? God is faithful. Not God was faithful. That's easy to see. He has been faithful in the past. He is faithful, which means that that is is always true. Tomorrow, when you get up in the morning, the is is present tense. It'll be true tomorrow and next week and next year. He is eternally faithful. You know, our real temptation when we are facing something, we're just feeling overwhelmed by, by something, is this sense that I cannot do this. I can, this is m- more than I can handle. And in those moments, what do we want to do? We want to get out, don't we? Have you ever had a trial where you like to sleep because while you're sleeping, you're glad that you don't have to feel the pain of what you're going through? I have been there. I love to sleep in the midst of that particular trial. It helped me get away. If you're here today and you're thinking, you know what? I did not sign up for the life circumstance that I, have, that I am in right now. I want to get out from this. Let me off the train. I'm done. I would suggest to you that the majority of the responses like that come from a fundamentally erroneous approach. <laughs> that was badly said, but... Uh, we're doing it wrong, okay, when we get feeling that way. Typically, that is because the starting point for my solution finding is me. Me. I need to figure this out. I need to come up with the resources to get through this. I need to fix this. I need to trust in my strength, in my wisdom, in my ability to make it happen. I need to lean on my own understanding. And whenever we, get, we approach the trials of life from this perspective, we will feel overwhelmed. Because what is true of us? We are fickle. And we are wishy-washy. And we are weak. And we cannot solve the problems in life. We have very little ability to do much of anything. And so when I begin these massive problems that come, I've got to do this. I can only be discouraged because I know myself too well. Self-dependence will fail us. Our fallen nature always wants to do it our own way, though. I thought of a poem. It's a famous poem by William Ernest Henley, who wrote a poem called Invictus. Many of you know the poem Invictus. And I'd like to read this poem to you. This is a popular creed for man's autonomy Man's ability to manage his own life. This is what Henley wrote. 
Out of the night that covers me, black is the pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. And here is the famous portion of the poem. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And you hear there in, in, in that Henley refusing to believe that anybody but self is going to be in charge. That I am the, I am the captain. I am the master. Which is, of course, horribly ironic. Because where, where is Henley right now? Dead. He's dead. So much for being the master of your fate, huh? He's dead. Timothy McVeigh, as I understand it, Timothy, Timothy McVeigh, when he was executed in the Terre Haute Federal Prison, as, by lethal injection, as he was going out, as he was dying, he was quoting this poem. Again, man's desire for autonomy. As he is dying, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Man's desire to manage his own life and to fix his own problems can only depress us because eventually life overwhelms us. Even the smartest, richest, most capable amongst us eventually will not be able to solve the matrix of life's problems. And if you're not there yet, you will be. And maybe, and ultimately, this is true for death. Figure out death on your own and you'll have done something nobody else has. Eventually, life overwhelms us. The Christian response to this is the antithetical one. So the human response, the secular response, is the autonomy of man, the greatness of man. You figure it out. You are the one who takes care of yourself. The Christian response, and what does that lead to? Depression, death, no answers there. The Christian response is the opposite of that. It is not that I provide the resources or my wisdom figures this out. It begins with a different starting point. It begins with God. It begins with God, and specifically, it begins with what is true about his character. Here, Paul says, he is faithful. Faithful. Now, I got to this point in my preparation, and I thought, okay, I'm going to look up some verses on God's faithfulness and just kind of check this out a little bit. So I went to Nave's topical study on uh, the subject of God's faithfulness, and this is what I found. And I thought, I don't want to look up all those verses. (laughs) And maybe just showing you all of these, and there's probably many more, should say something. What does God in his word want us to realize about what he is like? He is a faithful God. He is is trustworthy. He is not wishy-washy like we are. He is steady. He is the same. He doesn't change. It's the song that we sang a, a moment ago. He is unchangeable. He is unshakable. He is unstoppable. This is because of who he is. Our God is a faithful God. And Paul says that's the starting point when it comes to dealing with the struggles and the troubles and the temptations of life. Not me, but God. And what about God? He's faithful. He's faithful. 
So this is the issue when it comes to how I'm going to work through this trial. And if you're in a trial right now, listen carefully. When I orient myself, when I orient the trial around myself, and I lean towards the things that are true to me or make sense to me, I am going in a direction that will lead to fear, overwhelming sense, depression, and despair. Because I cannot do this. I am fallible. What we must do is begin our, 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 our solving, our working through these things with the character of God. And to bring that into my mind and my conscience and my heart and to pray and to meditate and to consider what is true about the God who loves me. And that is that he is faithful, faithful to his promises, faithful to his people. And specifically in those promises, he has promised that he who begun a good work in you will carry it unto completion, that this thing will not be my Waterloo. It will not be the end of me. Why? Not because of me, but because of God. And this requires faith, but it's the same faith that you exercised when you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior in the first place. It's not like a mystery faith that you got to get. It's the same faith. If you can trust God to be true to his promises so that when you stand before him someday and you say, I am a sinner, but by the grace of God, I have no hope for salvation. And he says, I promise that everyone who believes in my son, I will save And he does. If you can trust God that he will do that, can you not trust him over these issues that are going on in your life right now? I mean, if if you can trust him for eternity, how about the rebellious son? How about the difficulty at work? How about the issue in your marriage? How about the temptation that you're facing? How about any of these lesser issues? If he is good for this one, then I think he's good for this one. So it's the same faith exercised over the temptation or struggle or trial, believing that God is faithful. He is faithful. He has said that he will never leave us or forsake us, Hebrews 13, 5. He has promised that he will meet all of our needs according to his riches, Philippians 4, 19. And as I said, that he will carry on this work in us. Or here's another one that says it very well, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. So here's what this is saying, just in a nutshell. How do we, how do we get through these troubles? We escape, I'm using the word from the verse, we escape sin's grip by God's enablement to endure the struggle. Now, when I am facing temptation, what do I, what do I need? And that's what the rest of this verse addresses. So let's go back to the beginning. There's no temptation that has seized you except what is common to man. God is faithful. And here's the rest of it. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, here is where this whole thing gets particularly practical, because this is what I need to have 
like instinctively in my mind when I am facing a trouble or when I'm facing a temptation. Because you're not going to have time necessarily to let me go look up in the Bible or let me podcast that sermon. What did he say again? How are we supposed to handle it? This needs to be like just automatic, instinctive. Because this might be another week of snow days, moms. And this might be the week that you find out that you're the one that's laid off, and now you're part of the statistic. Or you might be watching TV this afternoon, NFL playoffs, and suddenly there's a picture of the Moabite woman from last week, and she's inviting you to take pleasure in her body. And in that moment, you're not going to have time to, you know, do a big, deep Bible study. We need to do this automatically. What am I saying? Here's what I'm saying. And this is what this verse is saying. When I am facing a a trouble, number one, recognize that God is sovereign over the trial. He is sovereign over the trial. And then secondly, he is providential in the rescue. Sovereign over the trial, providential in the rescue. Let's talk about the first one, sovereign over the trial. This verse says, you see it there, that he will not let us be tempted beyond our ability. What that means is, is that God filters the trials that we face to make sure that we never face something that we cannot get through. He, he, he never brings a calculus level trial to a first grade Christian. He makes sure that there is a match between my ability with his help to get through it and the nature of the trial in the first place. Now, right now, some of you are going, I like to protest. I believe in the inspiration of God's word, but I think that maybe there's been some kind of a mistake here because let me tell you some things that I've gone through in my life. And there is no doubt in this room quite a list of things and a list of things that are currently going, that we are going through that we would like to argue is more than we can handle, unfair, some kind of mistake. Are you beginning that explanation? Going back to my little model of self and God, are you beginning it with you or are you beginning it with God? Because if I begin it with me, then every trial is more than I deserve. If I begin it with a God who is sovereign over everything, who loves me, and who makes sure that I am never going to drown in a problem... Now I can look at the things in my life and say, every one of them, they are there because God intended it to be there. I don't like it. And he is not the author of evil. He doesn't tempt any of us. But the trial or the struggle comes from a God who is for me. Huge difference. Otherwise, I can give in to bitterness over this thing that's happened. Or I could be discouraged that I've not come up with a a way out of this thing. But when I see it as being from God, now this is a whole nother matter. Now I can have some hope because he's really good at bringing people through trials and we can take comfort in it. Now, does that mean that there aren't Christians who are overwhelmed? No. There are Christians who are overwhelmed. What it does mean is that God always provides, when it says a way of escape, he always provides the resources necessary for us to get through it. Now, accessing those is our responsibility. That's our job. But there is always a way of escape that God provides. 
We just need to be looking for it, which uh, is the second part of this, that he is providential in the rescue. But with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, here's another thing that I've learned about this verse this week. Because I've always read this verse, and I've kind of liked this verse because I like the idea of escaping trials and temptation. In fact, as I came to this, I was thinking about this message this week, and I sort of visualized myself. I thought, you know what? Maybe I could use the exit signs that are in the room as an example of what we do. You've got you to gotta look for your way of escape. And then you get out the door, and on the other side, you're like, <laughs> done with that. That's how I like to deal with trouble. Done with that. But what does the text say? He will give you a way of escape so that you can escape it. Is that what it says? What is the way of escape? So that you can, say the word with me. Again, endure it. Endure it. Now, I don't like that so much. How many of you are for escaping? How many of you are more for enduring? Yeah, I'm more on the escape side. I want to be done with it and move on and uh, not feel it like clinging to me anymore. But what God is saying here is that the escape is accessing the resources that he provides, which allows us to endure it. Now, that is not to say that there are not some times where we truly are escaping temptation. You can think of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, the running, the, the, the exhortations in the Bible to flee from temptation all the rest. There is a part of that. But typically, we are called to endure these trials and these struggles. Here's an example. How do you, how do you, uh, how do you escape the Chicago Marathon? Well, you don't sign up for it in the first place, right? That, that's, that's, a, that's a very helpful way to escape it. But if you are in the race, and once the race has started... How do you escape the Chicago Marathon? Now, some of you are going, I just walk off the track. Well, that doesn't sound like victory of Jesus to me, does it, to you? When you start the Chicago Marathon, there's one way to escape the Chicago Marathon, and that is to finish it. You finish it. And if you were to help somebody to escape the Chicago Marathon, it means that you would be helping them to endure to the end the race. And that's what I think God is saying here, we want to run away from it and sort of get this like parachute. God is wanting us to access his resources, his encouragement, his spiritual help in order to persevere in the trial, to hupo meno, to remain under the trial and to stick it out. And I think the misreading of this verse could lead to discouragement because there are some trials that there is no escaping from. How do you escape from the trial of a son who walks away from the faith and never comes back? How do you escape that? How do you escape a diagnosis of some disease that's not going to go away until the day you die? How do you escape that? How do you escape a painful memory in your past? See, there are some things that there is no escaping. Rather, we're called to endure them. But not just endure them out of a sense of duty, but a kind of enduring where God gives us hope and encouragement and we're able to count it all joy when we fall into trials, as James 1 tells us. 
So let me give you some examples of, of some faith resources and then how to respond to that in the midst of trial. Here's one. Here's a faith resource. This is what this verse is saying. God is sovereign over the trial. He is sovereign over the future. Now, what is my, I can know that, and then all of a sudden I'm in a trial. What is my faith response? I take that resource and I apply it to the fear that I am feeling, and I refuse to give into this belief that God will not be good to me in the future. Refuse. But it's based on a truth. How about Jesus' teaching? And there's many things of Jesus' teaching, but one of the things he taught us in the Lord's Prayer is to pray. Lead us not into temptation. Now you can know that. You could have known that all your life. But until in the morning you get up and you think about the fact that God is sovereign and I I want his help to keep me from stumbling and from falling and to pray, lead me not into temptation. It doesn't do you a bit of good. You can know all these things. It is the application of them in the day-to-day of life that keeps me from falling. How about Jesus' example? We're told in Hebrews 12 that we are to consider him who endured such hostility. The fact that Jesus Christ himself went through these things. Consider that. Think about that. Meditate on that. Be encouraged by his example. How about the truth that this God, who is sovereign over the trial, cares deeply for us? 1 Peter 5, 7, which goes on to say, Therefore, cast all your anxieties on him. How many of you today, if, if your troubles could be represented by burdens on your back, if we had somebody, like a big strong guy in the back, and as you left, hey, by the way, as you leave today, feel free to drop off your burdens. How many of you wouldn't just love to go over to that guy and go, Ah, we, the, the, line, the line would be out the door, right? I want to unload these burdens. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. How about the fact that God doesn't let the righteous fall? The fact that there are godly examples for centuries now of men and women just like us who have faced the same kinds of things and God has gotten really good. That's the wrong way to say it. He is really good at helping the righteous through their troubles. How about the role of God's word? Thy word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. You can know that. You could have known that all of your life, but until we are applying this to the day of day of life and in the darkness of a trouble, turning on the flashlight. Oh, hey, hey, hey. Look at, oh, look at that over there. The word has a role to play in helping us navigate through the troubles of life. Strength in the trial. You know, we're told that we are to remain under trials and to flee temptation. We typically want to do the opposite. We want to flee from trials and we want to flirt with temptation. Sort of hang in there, kind of enjoy it a little bit. No, don't do that. And then there is the faithfulness of God, which is what this verse says talks about. He is faithful. He is faithful to himself. He is faithful to his glory. He is faithful to his promises. He is faithful to his son. He is faithful to his creation. He is faithful to his people. He is faithful to his church. And if you are a Christian, God is for you. In the midst of this pain that you are in, there is a sovereign God who is for you. And if we could get a sense of how much he loves us, 
and how committed he is to seeing us through these things in our life, we would not fear. In fact, that's the thing repeated more than anything else in all the Bible. The most, the most common exhortation from Jesus Christ to us, do not fear. And I say that to my own heart because there are things that I'm going through even right now where I feel fear. It's so easy, isn't it, to just let a sense of doubt and a lack of faith to kind of creep in and you begin to wonder, you know, is, is this going to work out? And I'll, Don't do it. God is for us. His faithfulness can conquer our fears. So our escape, then, is what I'm saying. It's not necessarily from the temptation or from the trial, but it is an escape from sin, turning that trial into sin. As one writer points out this, it promises, this verse, that the sufficient cause of obedience will always be given in the hour of temptation. Namely, some evidence that God is more to be desired than sin. And that's the, that's the bottom line. Like, you can listen to this message, and you can go out into your week, and unless you leave here convinced that God is better than the sin that you're contemplating or the sin that you are involved in, we will never, ever overcome it. We need to realize that God is better than the pleasure of sin no matter what it is. And God is better than walking away from a trial. And God is better than giving in to fear or worry or bitterness or anger or whatever it might be, that God is better and greater. That's why we say it's all about Him. That says so much about what we need to live the Christian life. And God always provides an escape, a truth, an indication of what this sin is and how much better righteousness would be. We have to access it. We have to access you. Can I say it this way? You have to, I can't access it for you. Your wife can't access it for you. Your mom can't access it for you. This is you in your relationship with God, appropriating the promises of God into the reality of your life. And when we do that, God promises he will bring us through. He's not just let us out here flopping around. And these flow from his faithfulness and his glory. Friends, he is for you. Final thing I want to say is that this is one more reason to worship Jesus Christ. And the reason I say that is if we were honest about this week that we've just lived, or if, if our week was suddenly put on the screen, the thoughts that we've had, the sinful desires that we have had, the selfishness, the pride, the lust, the greed, all the rest, we would be terribly embarrassed, myself included. But here we have this person, Jesus Christ, a man just like us, living in the world just like us, filled with all of this brokenness and all of this sinfulness. And yet what was true of him? Hebrews 4.15 we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are. Here's the key. Yet without sin. <sighs> Can you believe that? I mean, we sin every day. He lived his entire life holy, righteous, and died a worthy lamb, able to conquer the law and sin and death because he lived an absolutely righteous life. You and I have never known anybody like this. We've never been anybody like this. 
But this is our Savior. He is the one. And so I just want to conclude with a, a Jesus worship moment and to give thanks for our perfect Savior who died to conquer sin.